Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Robert George, director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, which is hosting this afternoon's uh, lecture. Uh, let me welcome you all and a particular word of uh, welcome to Major Douglas uh, Ollivant and his group of cadets from West Point who are here with us uh, this afternoon. Welcome. Welcome. Uh, my dear friend, Father John Walk, who's visiting us from Rome and happens to be in the audience uh, th this evening, was saying that uh, he took particular pr pleasure as he was driving through rural New Jersey on his way here at the signs that were up uh, on houses and businesses and churches uh, as he drove along. Uh, God bless America. United we stand. And particularly signs that said, pray for wisdom. And those signs, uh, Father John told me, were not just on the churches. Uh, this really is a remarkable uh, country, and of course, this is a time uh, when we really do need to pray uh, for wisdom as we pray uh, for our country. Uh, and we know, of course, that uh, President Bush is among the people who's praying for wisdom and among the people we're praying for to have wisdom uh, at this particular uh, time when it's needed most. And before President Bush gave his address to Congress uh, on uh, the military response to terrorism a couple of weeks ago, he gathered together a group of very distinguished uh, religious leaders uh, at the White House. Uh, they were all clergy, with one exception, uh, and that was our speaker for this afternoon, Professor Jean Bethke Elstein uh, of the University of Chicago, and I don't have the slightest doubt that she was invited uh, to join in those deliberations, despite the fact that she was not a member of the clergy, for the wisdom that the President knew he would get uh, from her. Professor Elstein is the Laura Spellman Rockefeller Professor of Social and Political Ethics at the University of Chicago, uh, and she is quite simply one of our leading lights in the field of political thought. She's written on a range of subjects, everything from women uh, and war uh, to the theory of democracy, and she'll be discussing uh, this afternoon a topic that could not be more timely, just war and military intervention. So please join me in welcoming my very dear friend, Professor Jean Belk Elstein. Good afternoon. It's good to see so many of you here. I feel very well defended. Um, so uh, whatever I say, I trust I'll have some, some bodyguards, should any of you take umbrage. Um, as you know, the events of September the 11th um, have, in fact, uh, focused the mind wonderfully, as Samuel Johnson is said to have said about the prospect of hanging. Um, I was uh, recall the fact that when I was 11 years old, I won a 4-H club speech contest by orating on the theme, What America Means to Me. Uh, I think revisiting that theme is something that all of us have been called upon to do um, in the weeks since September the 11th. Uh, I don't know about you, but in my case, I find it profoundly discouraging when people don't reflect very deeply on that theme, discouraging when people resort in their response to the current situation, resort to tired cliches and to slogans and to chants that were already out of date 30 years ago and are particularly inapt in confronting this situation right now. Uh, this isn't Vietnam. It isn't even Desert Storm. It is a profoundly new situation and a new reality that we have to deal with, one that doesn't permit a retreat into 
ideology, and I'm understanding ideology rather the way that the great political theorist Hannah Arendt understood ideology, a universe of self-confirming theorems uh, that becomes closed off from reality. Now, what we need, of course, are some concepts and some categories that are robust enough and nuanced enough that they put us into the heart of the situation in which we find ourselves, rather than permitting us to flee from that situation and, again, to retreat into sort of nostrums and notions that would not bear up if, in fact, one put them into the situation to see if they helped us to understand and helped us to think about how we are responding. Now, I would ask you to consider the following. From President Bush to the average man and woman on the street, Americans, as you know, are evoking the language of justice to characterize our response to the despicable deeds perpetrated against innocent men, women, and children on September 11th. And when they do this, they tap into a complex tradition called just war. This tradition involves the belief that coercion and force can sometimes be an instrument of justice. The just war tradition consists of a set of criteria that help to determine, first of all, whether a resort to force in a given situation is or is not justified. Now, the origins of this tradition are usually traced back to St. Augustine's fourth-century masterwork, The City of God. In that great text, Augustine grapples with the challenge to violence of Christian teaching. If Christian teaching presented no problem in this regard, it surely wouldn't have been necessary for Augustine and for subsequent Christian theologians to grapple with this issue in such a complicated and nuanced way as many of them have. Now, as some of you may know, Augustine comes to the conclusion that wars of aggression and aggrandizement are never acceptable. But there are occasions when resort to force may be tragically necessary. This does not make violence a normative good, but it may make it, in a particular situation, a tragic necessity. What then makes this resort to force justifiable? For Augustine, the most potent justification is to protect the innocent, the innocent understood as those in no position to defend themselves. Innocent within this frame of reference doesn't mean you are pushing a presupposition that people are somehow morally innocent and without flaws. That's not the case. Innocent means in no position to defend yourself, to protect the innocent then from certain harm. If one has compelling evidence that harm will come to persons unless action involving coercive force is taken, a requirement of charity may well be, of neighbor love, the claim of the neighbor on us may well be a resort to arms. So protecting the innocent from harm is a just cause. Aiming to prevent and random and arbitrary resort to private violence or vengeance, just war thinkers also insisted, as this discussion continued over the centuries and became a tradition, insisted that war must be waged by a legitimate authority, that war should be driven by a right intention, not, for example, as I've already suggested, imperial aggrandizement, but to prevent or to punish a harm, and that war should be a last resort. 
And these are clustered together. These become the so-called ad bellum requirements or criteria. What justifies a resort to arms? The tradition consists of two parts. This is the first part, the so-called use ad bellum, what justifies the resort to arms. Now, there's more. The further upshot of Augustine's reflections is that a primary rule for those committed to just war is non-combatant immunity. This is the so-called principle of discrimination. That means that non-combatants must not be the intended targets of violence. And this is the key in bellow. What are you doing after having committed yourself to the use of force in the midst of war? What are the limitations to the use of force in order that one might fight justly? A carefully worked out act of intentional mass murder perpetrated against the non-combatants of one's own country then is an injury, an act of war that demands a response. That response involves just punishment, not in order to inflict grievous harm on the non-combatants of the country or countries whose operatives have armed your citizens, but rather in order to interdict wrongdoers in the name of prevention and to punish those responsible for the harm that has already been done. In a world of self-help, as the international relations thinkers call it, no one else is going to take care of this for you. The International Criminal Court, the International Human Rights Tribunal are not going to protect us from further harm. They can't do that. They are in no position to do that. Now, you respond then in a determined yet limited way to an act of aggression that itself, in this case, recognized no limits. When a wound as grievous as that of September 11th has been inflicted on a body politic, it would be the height of irresponsibility, it would be a dereliction of duty, it would be a flight from the serious vocation of politics were the leaders of a country to fail to respond. Government is charged with a solemn responsibility. Now, the just war thinkers argue against two other ways of looking at things. One is the pacifist tradition. The other is the tradition of um, realpolitik. Arguing against pacifists, those in the just war tradition claim or may claim that it may well be an exercise in bad faith to accept the scriptural warrant for government but to disdain its effective use even to continue, even as one continues to enjoy the benefits of the civic peace, the ordinary everyday civic peace, the tranquillitas ordinis, as it's called, for which government is responsible. Arguing against hardcore realpolitik, the just war tradition insists that even in violence and war, intimations of peace have to be sustained and honored, and that one does this by limiting one's own use of violence. For just war thinkers, a political ethic is an ethic of responsibility. The just war tradition offers a way to exercise that responsibility. So this way of thinking then rejects both the anything-goes-as-long-as-it-works ethic of realpolitik and rejects as well an ethic that forswears action if that action commits the country to the use of armed force in a responsible and limited way. Now, apropos the latter stance, the one that would prohibit the use of 
armed force. The just war argument asks, why are the practical alternatives to the use of armed force deployed in order to preserve and protect civic peace so often so inadequate? Can one cry peace, peace, when there is no peace and no possibility of such, as those who have decided that an entire country is composed of infidels fit only for destruction are not going to cease their efforts to kill as many of those infidels as they can. They have made this very clear. Perhaps we should take them at their word. What is the plausible alternative if one would protect the body politic? Too often one is offered pieties rather than possibilities or policies. To those from the realpolitik side who proclaim the irrelevance of the just war tradition, one asks, if in fact, as you usually suggest, this way of thinking is so hopelessly idealist and beside the point, why has so much of it over the years been absorbed within the laws of war, been codified by various Hague Conventions and Geneva Protocols and so on? There has been an attempt to take much of the just war tradition and in fact to try to create some kind of of normative international order based in part upon it that works to limit war's destructiveness. It goes without saying that these norms, rules, regulations, limits may be breached in extremis, but it is, I think, rather gratifying to observe just how often they are abided by. For example, the banning of the use of poison gas in combat, which happened after World War I, has been actually quite effective. Soldiers certainly take just war restraints seriously. In the immediate aftermath of the events of September 11th, I said to a friend, now we are reminded of what governments are for. None of the goods human beings cherish, including the free exercise of religion, can flourish absent a measure of civic peace and security. Those who plot in darkness and secret, those who operate stealthily, those who refuse to accept responsibility for wrongdoing, perpetrate harm beyond the immediate violent event. It is they who, would, who aim to force good into hiding, to drive people behind closed doors. Now, what good do I have in mind? The simple but profound good that is, moms and dads raising their children, men and women going to work, citizens of a great city making their way on streets and subways, ordinary people buying airplane tickets in order to take a vacation or visit the grandkids in California, men and women en route to transact business with colleagues in other cities, the faithful attending their churches and synagogues and mosques without fear. Make no mistake about it. This quotidian ideal, this basic civic peace, is a great good. It is a great good. And if you have been following the very interesting series, running series in the New York Times, that offers, have you been seeing this, these little sketches on the people who were lost? Uh, one of the things that's really struck me about this is the way in which that simple good of civic peace is lifted up and each of these sketches, and why it is so powerful to read them and to know that you have fathers who will never, who, who never had the chance to see a newborn child. Uh, you have mothers uh, who 
uh, lost the opportunity, the, the great blessing of watching their children grow up and so on. That's the quotidian idea and ideal that I'm talking about. That's what civic peace makes possible. Beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, a world in which and we've, I'm sure you all know this passage, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That is a vision connected with certain conditions. We often forget that. Kenneth Anderson, in a very interesting piece in the Times Literary Supplement recently, reminded us of that because the prophet tells us that the condition of eschatological peace is one sort of end-time peace, is one in which the Lord's house has been established everywhere and all go up to the mountain of the Lord, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this image of peace is then connect, connected to this condition of the word of the Lord, Lord pertaining everywhere. Well, to say the least, we are not there yet. As Martin Luther observed, if the lion lies down with the lamb, the lamb must be replaced frequently. <laughs> Sorry, I don't have a glass. So I just have to use the bottle. The ordinary civic peace that horrific violence disrupts and attempts to destroy offers intimations of eschatological peace, and it is a good to be cherished and not made light of. It is a good we charge our public officials with maintaining. If we live from day to day in fear of deadly attack, the other goods we cherish become difficult. Human beings, as we have been shockingly reminded, are fragile, soft-shelled creatures. We cannot reveal the fullness of our being, including our deep sociality, if airplanes are flying into buildings and cities become piles of rubble composed in part of the mangled bodies of victims. We can neither take the civic peace for granted nor shake off our responsibility for helping to respect and to promote the norms and rules whose enforcement is constitutive of civic peace. Now, St. Augustine taught us in the same book in which he, The City of God, in which he discusses what became known as the just war tradition, he taught us that we should not spurn worldly vocations, including the often tragic vocation of the judge, tragic because he or she can never know with absolute certainty whether punishment is being meted out to the guilty and not to the innocent. But we depend on judges, we depend on others, who hold certain offices to uphold a world of responsibility, a world in which people are not permitted to devour one another like fishes, in Augustine's pithy phrase. Public officials are charged with protecting a people. As those extraordinary firemen in New York said simply, it's my job. It's my job. They didn't see themselves as doing anything heroic. It's very interesting that many of our greatest uh, political and civic thinkers. I just finished a book on uh, Jane Addams of Hull House, and one of the uh, issues that she, or the themes that she strikes again and again and again, is that the democratic culture is not a warrior culture, it is not a grandly heroic culture, but in fact it is a culture that makes possible the creation and, and simple everyday life, the creation of persons through civic and moral formation who, if the need arises, are capable of heroism. 
that that's a basic democratic hope. When the need arises, they can rise to that occasion. They can rise to that occasion because of the tradition of civic and moral formation of which they have been a part, that has formed them and shaped them to their ordinary everyday tasks, but also makes it possible for them to respond in certain dire uh, situations of dire necessity. It's their job. The same holds for our military. It is their job. It is our sons and daughters who do it. This is their office, and it embodies another vital dimension of the just war tradition, one, remember, aimed at limiting freelance, opportunistic, and individualistic violence. Fighting takes place under a structure that includes norms, rules, regulations, and restraints. So even as just war permits resort to arms, it challenges the anything-goes approach to violence. Now, responding justly to injustice is a very tall order, to say the least. It is. It means, the implication of this, is that it is better, in many circumstances, to risk the lives of one's own combatants than to intentionally kill enemy non-combatants. It is often difficult to separate combatants from non-combatants, as we are learning in this current situation, and has, as we have learned in the past, but one must try to do that. The restraints internal to the just war tradition encode the notion of limits to the use of force. During and after a conflict, we assess the conduct of a war-fighting nation by how its soldiers conducted themselves. Did they rape and pillage? Or were they under careful rules of engagement? Was every attempt made to limit civilian casualties, knowing that in time of war, civilians are inevitably going to fall in harm's way? I think a cynical response to these efforts to limit the damage is entirely unwarranted. Theologian Oliver O'Donovan put this question at the time of the Persian Gulf War. He said, just ask yourself whether you would rather have been a citizen of Berlin in 1944 when the strategy was one of mass terror bombing, saturation bombing of German cities, or a citizen of Baghdad during the Persian Gulf War. He said the answer to that is obvious, as every effort was made in U.S. targeting strategy to avoid civilian targets during that conflict. Since the Vietnam War and the restructuring of the United States military, pains have been taken to underscore the codes of ethics that derive from the just war tradition in our military academies, as these cadets surely know, in the training of our soldiers, our sailors, our Marines, our pilots. No group in this country pays more attention to ethical restraint on the use of force than does the United States military. I have visited our service academies. I've seen uh, the curricula. I've participated in one or two classes. They pay very careful attention to these issues. We do not, and as a result, we do not kill or even threaten to kill nearly 5,000, I think the number is at now, civilians, because that number of our own civilians have been murdered by perpetrators who scarcely deserve the name of either soldier or warrior. We put soldiers into combat rather than unleashing terrorists. And the soldier puts himself, herself at risk as surely as the firefighter. By contrast to the terrorist, he or she seeks to search out and to punish those responsible for planning, aiding, abetting, and perpetrating an evil deed. 
Just punishment is different from revenge. Revenge repudiates all limits. Just punishment observes restraints. I think thus far the course charted by the administration is one that is complex and it is one that is restrained. The use of military force, as you know, is viewed as part, one part, but one part of an overall strategy. I think one sign that the President and his advisors are aware of the need for restraint is the move they made immediately to rename a mission that had originally been dubbed Operation Infinite Justice with a more modest name that does not suggest a utopian goal. That was done immediately. It's now, as you know, Operation Enduring Freedom. Another sign is the President's repeated insistence, did it again today, that our response is not aimed at a whole nation or a whole people or a religion or a way of life, but is instead directed at those who defame their own religion, who drag their own people into harm's way, and who perpetrate an ideology that has as its end the deaths of babies and people in wheelchairs and moms and dads and brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts and friends and lovers, grandmas and grandpas going about their daily routines. And why should they die? Simply because they are Americans. It doesn't matter if you are white or black, if you are young or old, if you are male or female, if you are able-bodied or with a disability, if you are gay or straight, Christian, Muslim or Jew, you are supposed to die. They have told us that. We need to believe them when they say that. The aim of terrorism is terror. They accomplished their end. The terrorists did not issue a set of demands. They did not say, negotiate with us or else. They simply murdered. That is why one doesn't negotiate with them. There's nothing to negotiate about if the end your opponent seeks is your obliteration. At some point, the word breaks off and the call to responsible action begins. On September 11th, we sustained a greater loss of life in a single day on our soil than ever before in our history, easily topping the previous norm, if we want to call it that, for a day of death, which was the Battle of Antietam. Now, Americans tell us that they are prepared for this different kind of war, and by that they don't mean a war with no limits. In fact, it's interesting in the surveys that have been done that the numbers of those who support action against terrorism begins to waver if the question is put as to whether this force would be acceptable if large numbers of men, women, innocent men, women, and children are the victims. Clearly, people want to avoid that. No war, as I've already indicated, can be fought without putting noncombatants in harm's way. But the public not just the military, not just our political leaders, the public wants that harm to be as limited as it possibly can be. They favor doing everything possible to limit this damage. And in this, um, I certainly heartily concur. We know from previous uh, combat situations, certainly this was the case, these were the rules of engagement in Desert Storm, uh, rules of engagement now, that American fighter planes are enjoined to return to base with their ordnance if there is no appropriate military target to hit or if weather conditions obscure it or other conditions pertain that mean that that means that that target can't be hit, you are not just permitted to dump your bomb any place, which was in fact the policy in World War II. Just get rid of it. Hit, hit anything. 
We openly take casualty for and deplore even one civilian casualty. Those we are fighting know that the United States abides by restraints in its rules of engagement. And that is precisely why our opponents often do their best to place their own civilians in harm's way, to surround military targets with civilians or to bring military targets to civilians, to hold their own civilians hostage. That's what Saddam Hussein did. That's what Slobodan Milosevic did. I dare say that the Taliban, if they're sufficiently organized, will attempt to do and probably are attempting to do the same thing. If the United States was not punctilious in this regard, why would they bother to do that? They know this about us. Now, one reason this country wearied of the Vietnam War was the realization that fighting a guerrilla war meant we could not distinguish combatants from non-combatants, and that even without horrors like the My Lai Massacre, our soldiers were put in the impossible position of regarding everyone without discrimination as the enemy. That's not the case here. Respond, we must respond, we shall. We are obliged, it seems to me. It is an ethic of civic responsibility to stop those who are prepared to use civilians against other civilians by turning a great symbol of human freedom of movement, the commercial airplane, into a deadly bomb. We will put our combatants in harm's way to punish those who put our non-combatants in harm's way and have no compunction about mass murder. That is the burden of the just warrior. Now, in the dark days of Nazi terror, there, there was a brave young German theologian. I hope the name is known to some of you. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He had been moving, which is pretty remarkable for a German Lutheran of his era, probably a German Lutheran of any era, toward, toward pacifism. But he committed himself to a conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler, to cut off the head of the snake. And in reflecting on that situation, in an essay he asked, who stands fast? Who stands fast in this situation? And Bonhoeffer observed that the great evil that had appeared among the German people had, in his words, played havoc with all our ethical concepts. And he was particularly critical of those who, again, his words, flee from public altercation into the sanctuary of private virtuousness. But anyone who does this must shut his mouth and his eyes to the injustice around him. Only at the cost of self-deception can he keep himself pure from the contamination arising from responsible action. The contamination arising from responsible action. Someone who cares about that, about responsible action, Bonifer argued, will ask not, how can I do, how can I keep my own hands clean, but will ask this question, how is the coming generation to live? How is the coming generation to live? Again, you cannot attain the simple goods, that quotidian ideal of civic peace, if people are compelled day after day, year after year, to live in fear. We know what happens to people who live in pervasive fear. And it isn't pretty. Over time, it invites lashing out. It, it invites severe isolation from a desperate desire to protect oneself. It encourages or can 
Certainly if it perdures, it encourages harsh measures because, and in this Thomas Hobbes was certainly right, we simply cannot live as human beings if we live in constant fear of violent death. I had the remarkable experience recently, um, a discussion with one of our daughters, who's the mother of two of our grandchildren. Uh, We're sitting looking out the window at this beautiful expanse of lawn and asking ourselves what we would do if there was a biological or chemical attack. Again, the International Criminal Court and International Human Rights Tribunal are not going to protect us from that. The world of international relations is not the same as a domestic legal jurisdiction that has, by definition, a punitive and enforcing arm. We can't repair to some other entity to handle the problem. So we are, in fact, forced to ask these kinds of questions. How do you walk that line between panicking and being alert and responsible? So we were asking, well, should we have a plan for who would pick up the children and the grandchildren, uh, where we should rendezvous? What about the issue, which has become ever more exigent in people's minds of stockpiling antibiotics and so on? Should you discuss any of this? with five-year-old and seven-year-old children? Those are the kinds of questions that Americans are asking today and tonight and will be asking in the days ahead. And we count on our leaders to be responsible and to respond to the horrible acts that have been done and to attempt to protect us from further such acts in a way that is consistent with the best of our tradition. And I would submit to you that the best of our tradition includes this just war tradition. So, just war insists that military efforts should be mounted only for an exigent reason of substantial importance, an exigent reason of substantial importance, and should be conducted in an honorable because limited way. This tradition teaches us that one sometimes must fight, but that in fighting it is vital, it is essential to display the difference between the soldier and the terrorist. And that is the burden the just war tradition places on our combatants and places indeed on all of us who are citizens of this country at this particular point in time. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Professor Elstein. Uh, Why don't we open the floor uh, for for questions? I'd be very uh, happy to give priority to the students, including the Mm -hmm. cadets who are here Mm -hmm. uh, visiting us. So floor is open. Yes, ma'am. Can you speak up very loudly so they can hear you in the back? Um, sure. Okay, okay. Okay. You don't have much room. Okay, okay. there we go. But according to what I actually just yeah. read, Article 51 of the United Nations Charter only condones the use of armed force in self-defense. And yet you're talking in terms of just punishment. Would yes. Would you clarify between the two? All right, the, qu- the question is, Article 51 of the... UN Charter. UN Charter 
uh, says that war can just be justified only in self-defense. Professor Elstein has talked about just punishment as a component of just warfare. Mm -hmm. Where do you stand on that, Gene? Well, um, certainly uh, defense may well involve this issue of just punishment. In this situation, just punishment will be one feature of of defense, of self-defense. UN Charter, remember, also um, calls upon its member, its signatory nations, its members to respond to a direct act of aggression against any one of them. That was the that was the provision that made possible the creation of the coalition that fought the, the Persian Gulf War. Um, but self-defense in this instance uh, is a response to a direct act of aggression. We didn't just look about us and decide there were some bad people in the world. We wanted to punish them. You know, obviously, you're responding to a deed, a particularly horrendous deed that involved that that did constitute, by any standard I know of, an act of war. Uh, so this is entirely consistent with the UN Charter. And of course, Kofi Annan has has indicated that himself and has made that very clear. Um, we're, we're going to try to see others, but we're going to try to get students first, and then we'll, yeah. I do see your hands. Um, <laughs> Any other students? Any other students? Are you a student? In, in the back. Oh, yeah. all right. All right. Sorry. Way in the back. Well, let's let's say we're 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 going sort of by guesses about age. How's that? And the, the, the really the really mature people have to wait a little longer. Right. I will have to repeat the question yeah. uh, because it's mm -hmm. got to go through this microphone to be on the film. Right. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, you mentioned a couple of times uh, how there is no real international body who uh, who you can reach out to. In terms to protect you to from protect this you kind of... Terms, that's why you come to the conclusion you have to do all these things, which you then argue. Uh, would that not be an inclination to actually uh, improve on trying to build those international bodies which do the things? Like, if I have a problem on state level, federal level, I have institutions to go to, in I can call it 911. Indeed you do. And get the yeah. protection. Mm -hmm. Whereas in this case, internationally, we don't have the 911 number. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's not uh, an alternative to thinking about just war, especially in the long run, thinking about what kind of international institutions do we need to actually give us legitimate protection and mechanisms. The, very quickly, the question uh, is that Professor Elstein has noted that we do not have international institutions that are akin uh, to uh, domestic institutions, domestic governmental institutions and their ability to protect us. Doesn't that mean, the questioner says, that we should be working toward the development of international institutions that can offer that sort of protection? Well, it seems to me that uh, responding to a direct act of aggression um, in the interests of preventing further harm, that doing that and at the same time uh, hoping in some way to make more robust certain international institutions are not mutually exclusive goals. I mean, one, one doesn't sort of sit around and hope for that, for that kind of international body to emerge when you're dealing with a direct threat and this kind of situation. That, that's the easy response to your question. The more difficult one is simply to point out the uh, perduring frustration uh, of those who have for a long time, as I'm sure you know, this is not a new problem, for a long time have sought the creation of some kind of international structure that would funct function rather like a domestic police force, uh, that in fact you could do this in effect 911 di dial up, and there would be a way, a body that would assess the situation, uh, respond if there's just cause, and in fact 
police, engage in this policing and this protection. Um, to say that we are very, very far removed from such a world is to, is to understate. Um, because, as you know, you wind up with, with intractable problems about how such bodies are to be composed, what is to give them their legitimacy, what is to give them their enforcement power, um, how, are, how are such forces to be deployed. I mean, the closest we've come, as you know, um, is with the use of UN peacekeeping forces. Um, those often come into a situation when it has uh, a situation in which uh, other means have been exhausted, or those in the situation who need protection are in, are in absolutely no position uh, to provide that protection themselves when no other country sees that as his or her direct and sole responsibility. So there are all sorts of situations in which you try to make use of such forces with, with, with very an uneven record of success. I don't, I don't want to make light of those efforts. I mean, there, there are some UN peacekeeping forces in place that have been in place for a long time and arguably really are keeping the peace through their continuing presence. That really isn't the same thing as responding, as you know, to this kind of situation. And I, for one, simply don't see uh, such an international institution or body emerging in the near future. I, I just don't. And I think that it, it does remain a world of, uh, uh, to extraordinary extent, a world of self-help for people when, when they have been attacked in this way. Uh, but again, not mutually exclusive, I would say. One of my own students, yes. Um, yes, the uh, waging a war for purposes yeah. of, um, of punishment or self-defense seemed to me a lot clearer than this case you mentioned of deterrence. And I was wondering if you could say something more about the limits on deterrence, how far that can be taken. For instance, if we were to, to capture or kill, say, Osama bin Laden and some of his close associates, maybe we could say we'd be justified in taking out certain elements of the Taliban that were sponsoring that movement, but would we be justified in, say, this larger war on terrorism that, um, that Bush is, is talking about undertaking? And also, what is the, what is the limit on that in terms of who, who's going to be the target of, this, of these terrorists? Okay, I think that one was picked up by, oh, the, by the mic. Okay, um, the uh, two. I want to respond and uh, divide it into two parts. Um, the, the first part has to do with recognition of the limits to your own effective use of power. Uh, clearly, the lines of responsibility and justification are clearest when you when a country, as our own country is doing at the moment, responds to a direct attack on its own civilians that took place on its own soil. Uh, if you believe that you have found, as we do, and there's evidence for this, those who were directly responsible, in this case the Al-Qaeda network and its supporters, then there's, there's a clear warrant uh, for, the, for the action that we're undertaking. Now, this wider war on terrorism, uh, certainly the President, Secretary of State, um, Secretary of Defense, everybody who's talked about it has made it clear, has to, has to be that ha we are part of an international coalition. This has to be a multi-state, multinational effort in which all the nations of the world uh, understand that it is in their self-interest, if nothing else, to attempt to do something about the existence of these terrorist networks that often, as you know, hold uh, particular states hostage. I mean, they say in effect, I mean, it's like a protection racket. Say, in effect, give us 
such and such aid or assistance or support or don't bother us or else you're going to be the direct target of attack. It's hard to imagine uh, any country that would say we kind of like this situation and we don't want to do anything about it. I think that in fact they do want to do something about it. There has never been an effective international coalition to make those kinds of moves in the past. Will it be possible to create one now? It's going to be an enormously complicated task because this coalition, as you know, is inherently unstable. I'm very fragile with all sorts of competing interests internal to it. Clearly, the United States cannot do this by itself. Uh, clearly, the United States needs allies in this effort. And clearly, many of these allies have to come from not just from the Western world, but have to come from uh, Islamic nations and from other countries with which we have sort of shaky alliances in some cases or uh, sort of very prickly relationships has to be that kind of a multinational effort. And I think that's important to put in here. I emphasized our responsibility to respond to the attack. But I think it's also very important to note, uh, as I'm sure you all have, the building up of this international coalition um, to deal with this threat and with this, this problem. Because it's clearly, again, going to continue. If people have been effective um, and dramatically so, and regard themselves as having been dramatically effective. They are going to continue to try to uh, use the means that they have used on their view successfully in the past. Uh, it's, it simply won't stop unless something is done to stop it. It won't. Uh, by the way, let me just add here. This gives me an opportunity to do this, and I, 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 I promise I'll take all of your questions. Um, <laughs> well, I can't let Well, let me know. We'll have a just war over whether or not I will take all of your questions. And that is that um, in, in talking about this issue and thinking about this issue, um, I often hear people, and I understand this very well, saying, well, maybe there's something we can do so people won't be so mad at us. And, you know, we can do something about Middle Eastern policy, or we can, do, we can take some other kinds of steps. Uh, I'm certainly not going to stand before you and say that American foreign policy has been without its flaws, and American foreign policy is perfect in every res respect. You'd have to be foolish to make that argument. Uh, that, in fact, uh, the, the Middle Eastern situation, the Israeli-Palestinian Palestinian conflict is not part of the, 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 the background, let's call it the sort of background conditions here. That's very different from pointing to that situation or any other that pertains as a cause for what happened. Because Osama bin Laden and people who share his views are very clear that you have to attack Americans not for any particular thing they have done, but for what they are. But for what they are. We are the problem simply by existing, right? simply by being a nation that they mark to the man, woman, and child, whatever your religion, as a nation that engages, that, that composed of infidels, that engages in blasphemy, uh, that permits all kinds of uh, horrible things to go on, you know, like women get to vote. And, um, you know, you get, to, you get to listen to rock music and go to movies and all kinds of hideous things on their view. So it is what you are that they mean to destroy. Again, doesn't mean we shouldn't do something about certain situations, but it's very important to keep that in mind. You could solve the Middle East, you wave a wand, solve the Middle Eastern problem tomorrow. Al-Qaeda would not go away. They would not go away. Dear Tina Elstein, would stand here until 9 o'clock this evening answering your questions if I didn't uh, stop her. I won't stop her yet, no, but eventually I yet. will stop her. Moving from students to faculty, Professor Stout. 
Where are you, Jeff? Here. Oh. <laughs> Gene, granted, we are taking considerable care right. to uh, aim at military yes. yes. and to uh, avoid aiming at civilians. But we are also the country that dropped bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we are the a country that continues to embrace a, a nuclear deterrence strategy that involves taking direct aim at civilian targets. Are you concerned about an element of hypocrisy here? Would you recommend any consistency that we uh, ask the world for forgiveness? and show repentance for uh, some of these earlier acts? The very quick translation of the question for the uh, uh, film. Uh, Professor Stout, I think, is asking whether we haven't already compromised the principle of non-combatant immunity in the bombing of the uh, Japanese uh, cities and in the maintenance of a nuclear deterrent, which includes a threat of final uh, retaliation. Um, well, Jeff, I'm, I'm sure that you would agree with me that um, the possibility of, let's call it um, social and ethical learning, uh, is, is, is a real possibility for persons and for whole societies. Uh, and that, in fact, part of the, in the aftermath of the Second World War, and uh, it's important, of course, to remember that the use of the atomic uh, bombs came at the end of a terrible long war in which the restraints had already been off for some time. As you know, I mentioned that in my talk about the bombing, the saturation bombing of German cities. Um, our pursuit of a strategy of unconditional surrender and the view, as, as you know, and as I know you know, was that the, the nature of the enemy that we faced in Nazi Germany, and a bit less so, but still in uh, Japanese militarism, was such that uh, you could not put any conditions on or accept any conditions from them on what you were going to do to bring the thing to a close. Now, the aftermath of that, uh, it, there's been a very interesting sort of stepping back from and even revulsion on the part of Americans, the studies I've seen at least, as they look back on that. You have fewer and fewer people who say, yes, I think that was justified. Enormous numbers at the time thought it was, just to get the war over with. Um, now I think we've become appropriately more concerned with uh, the issue of moral restraint even in time of war. It is also the case that the, the nature of modern weapons technology makes that more possible, that the kinds of, the kinds of bombs that you can use now uh, are, in fact, more discriminatory themselves. Uh, there, there is something like a, a weapons ethical officer, you know, that reviews new weapons systems and thinks of them in light of many of these conditions of restraint. That never pertained before. So I think there are all kinds of things that we have done um, such that that kind of situation, just obliteration of civilians, uh, is something that the United States, I'm quite convinced, is not going to do again. Now, on the issue of the nuclear deterrent, as you know, uh, here, um, th there have been, I think, substantial and authentic efforts uh, to begin to stand down as far as the nuclear balance of terror. There have been some changes in targeting strategy. Now, the, the change to a sort of counter-value strategy, is, as it's called, where you start to target cities, took place under Jimmy Carter, actually. Um, counter-population uh, or counter-value strategy. That strategy... Uh, is one that was, has been much debated and uh, I think rather significantly altered without, I think, officially, uh, officially sort of repudiating it. But um, 
that those who uh, are responsible for the maintenance of this nuclear force are very interested in gradual sort of certainly reduction of it and perhaps at one point even elimination. It's become trickier since the end of the Cold War because you don't have just one superpower to, to deal with. You've got multiple smaller powers, the successor states for the Soviet Union, but also some other countries, India and Pakistan, among others, who have uh, nuclear weapons. So there I would say that um, <clears throat> you, you wind up in this dilemma that the Catholic bishops talked about in their 1983 pastoral. Um, are you permitted to threaten that which you would never do, which is to use an atomic weapon against a city? Um, the bishop said, no, you're not permitted to threaten that which you wouldn't do. But they also said that uh, an immediate move to completely disarm in a situation where you ha do have this counterforce aimed at you with first strike capability would be irresponsible. So you have to start to uh, stand down and to cease to even threaten to do that, which you would never do. I don't know, I don't know how you can improve on that, to, to tell you the truth, unless you just said we're going to unilaterally disarm, uh, which I think would be enormously destabilizing and probably would not have the kind of good effect that, that, that you would hope or that I would hope. Major Olivant? Could you talk about the uh, ambiguities involved, the fact that these people were at war with are, are non-state actors, they're, they're not yeah. soldiers, they're yeah. not yeah. they're, they're criminals, but we don't want to give them a presumption of innocence. We don't want to see Bin Laden get off on a technicality defended by, you know, a high-priced lawyer. Um, and you talk about how we treat these people, and what does the just war tradition say about that? Yeah. Well, the, the question uh, is, what are the complexities and ambiguities that are introduced by virtue of our enemy being something other than a state actor? Um, well, there it seems to me that all the usual restraints on our part need to pertain, uh, that you treat them as you would any other uh, determined military foe, uh, although, of course, you're dealing with a whole uh, situation in which the, the sorts of uh, presuppositions that one makes about what state actors are going to do, the right authority issue and so on, just doesn't pertain in their case. But remember, they're doing these kinds of things with state sponsorship. I mean, it's a kind of shadow pseudo-state. I mean, these are very interesting and very tricky movements because they are parasitic upon the existence of many states that serve in effect as hosts. But I, I would say that there's no difference in principle uh, from, from combating them in the way one would a state actor in this situation. Uh, and you certainly don't. I think the domestic jurisdiction criminal uh, model is not the model that should pertain here. Simply not. It, the, the, this is an act of war. You're in war. It's not a matter of that uh, for, for something like domestic uh, police jurisdiction. It simply isn't. Um, oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah there are a lot. Yeah. Of, the, this, uh, these two people have had their hands you, up for you, a long time. Fine. So, uh, 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 yes, ma'am. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And she's a student. We always good, cover that. Good. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Now, you referred quite a lot to the nature of the crime that's been committed against us. Yes. The nature of the September 11th. Yes. That they, that they targeted us. Yes. Well, I'm really wondering how much of a difference that makes to the justice of what we do. That is, if, hypothetically speaking, they launched uh, an attack on a, similar, on a similar scale, but at military installations or um, at national leaders, 
it seems to me like our response will be equally just equal justice in this time. Even though, of course, the fact that these people target innocence reflects quite poorly on our enemies. Uh, it doesn't, I don't see quite how it's relevant to uh, yeah, uh, this would be a question about the relevance of the nature of the terrorist act committed against our nation and our fellow citizens to deliberations about what injustice we can do in response. Um, it's, uh, it's a very interesting question. I think you're quite right that as far as responding militarily, we certainly would be if the attack had been, let's say, against three army installations and those killed had been, had been soldiers, that would still be an act of, uh, of aggression, an act of war, and you'd be responding. I think where the difference comes in is that the, the ethical imprimatur in this situation is, is, is so clear. Uh, precisely because of the nature of what they did um, and the kind of attack that they mounted, that that, if you will, reveals to us uh, with horrible clarity uh, the nature of those who would do that, who would commit those kinds of acts, and who would somehow consider that, somehow consider that part of what it means for someone to go to war. All right. Uh, also, now, I didn't talk about this, and it's, it's a, a tricky issue within the just war tradition. Um, I mean, tricky in the sense that it's, it gets, it's very hard to puzzle through. And that is the whole is issue of uh, the kinds of ethical and moral restraints that the just war uh, position assumes ordinary citizens are capable of even when they themselves have suffered a grievous harm um, that in fact again you you are the, 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 you cannot just issue a clamor for going and killing all of them you can't do that there has to be that sense of restraint even when the harm is egregious as the one uh, that took place on September the 11th now um, one of the things that I think we have to be grateful to the administration for is the way that from the very first moment, um, from the president on down, they have worked to distinguish between the sort of ordinary followers of Islam, Arab Americans in our midst, and those who did this to us. Uh, in previous situations in this country where some unjust things happened to American citizens, uh, for example, the Nisei, the Japanese-Americans during World War II and so on, we can go back to some of the terrible stuff attendant upon the anti-immigrant hysteria uh, in the World War I era. That happened with the approval and even the encouragement of the highest levels of government. I mean, the, the Japanese were removed by executive order of President Roosevelt. In this situation, it seems to me that the, the injunction to restraint also pertains to how we are to treat one another, how Americans are to treat one another, and that the kind of adversary that we face is not just in our midst as, a, as an ordinary follower of, of Islam, our, our fellow Amer Arab American citizens. So that's another of the restraints. I'm sorry I'm straying off your question, but it gives me a chance to say this. Another of the important restraints that that tradition bears uh, within it um, what are citizens to do in these situations? How are they to think about them? We have time for three or four more questions, if they're brief questions and brief answers, uh, uh -oh. I'm afraid. So if everybody could <laughs> sort of uh, uh, truncate. But, uh, I knew he'd crack the whip sooner or later. <laughs> uh, let me recognize mm -hmm. Mr. Louis Van Dusen.
and just get this gentleman here. That, that's fine, Lou. I know that you know what you're talking about. The, Mr. Van Dusen is a member of the class of 1932 and served with enormous distinction uh, in the Second World War as a key person, uh, not only in bringing uh, uh, Churchill uh, into prominence in the United States and bonding that alliance between Britain and, and the United States, but, but also afterwards. And I take it, Lou, that the message is that there's a lot to learn uh, from our experience uh, uh, with Britain uh, in the Second World War. Uh, today, and I, and I think that uh, Professor Elstein would, would agree with that 100%. Uh, I'm going to have to move along because, the because we have so little time for questions, this, but I do thank you, Lou. This gentleman right there has sure, had please, his hand up please. for a long time. Thank you. Uh, yeah. uh, I have a question dealing with practicality. You're sure. You're talking about the just tradition of war. Yeah. I was wondering about the, um, for the first time, what appears to be the first time we're dealing with an enemy that where death is glory, yeah. which is in 50 or 60 different countries. So notwithstanding all that you said from a moral perspective, what, do you, what does the just tradition talk about the practicality with regard to when do we win? When have we done enough? When is enough enough, number one? Yeah. And number two, again, yeah. from the practicality perspective, what does it say, what, what levers can we use for someone with those kinds of beliefs, without a territory to be attacking, it appears yeah, that's yeah. just one of 50 yeah, or 60 yeah. territories. 
etc. So the, my question deals with practicality. The question uh, has to do with the unique practical problems presented by the fact that we're dealing with people for whom death is glory, uh, who, who, are who are operating out of perhaps 50 or 60. I I've heard 40. The questioner says 50 or 60 uh, different countries. When will we uh, be able to declare victory in something like this, or is this an endless war? Um, it's a, a very challenging question, and one uh, part of the just war tradition that I didn't spend time talking about in the interest of time is that part that talks about not embarking on a course of action unless there is a reasonable chance for success, uh, and also... Uh, in effect sets up or, or insists that one needs to set up some notion of, in fact, when the end has been reached, when, when victory or just punishment or some end has been arrived at, so that you precisely don't commit yourself to something that has no end and that has no reasonable prospect of success. I think the fact that we recognize that as a problem helps to account for why, as I indicated, the military operation was renamed from Operation Infinite Justice where there's clearly no end to it, to something else. Um, now, <clears throat> it strikes me that um, the administration has been uh, building up the notion that there's an immediate situation that we have to respond to. And clearly at some point uh, you could say that we have been successful. How would you know because nothing has happened? That makes this a very tricky business. You can't sort of look at that and say we had a great victory there. It's when nothing happened that you know you're being successful, when no further attacks are mounted, when people are not uh, dying from horrible chemical attacks or are not in airplanes that have been taken over and flown into buildings. That makes it, I think, unusually challenging and potentially very frustrating. So freedom really does require eternal vigilance. So, 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 so the vigilant issue, yes, but it seems to me over the long run, uh, this is a problem that clearly isn't going to go away, but it's a problem which the whole international comity of nations has a stake. And presumably you will, uh, over time, get, get the building up of certain, hopefully, effective coalitions and means to deal with it over the long run because it's going to be there for the long run. So I would say the immediate issue that we face right now, but then the longer-range issue that the world faces precisely because of the proliferation of all sorts of technologies uh, for, for terror and mass destruction that are now clearly in the hands of non-state actors. Eric. <clears throat> Eric. Yeah. You cited President Bush's uh, this is not a war of religion. This is not, you cited President Bush's claim this is not a war of religion. This right. Is not a war against Islam, against Islam. Yeah. yes. Yes. That seems to be a kind of powerful message that has uh, been clear in the administration. Mm -hmm. but some people have drawn back from that. I was thinking of Andrew Sullivan and Alan Wolf recently had articles that said this is a war of religion, yeah. maybe not between religions, but within a religion, and that uh, those forms of belief that have not made their peace with modernity uh, is going to result in this kind of um, clash, not of civilizations, but within a within civilization. A civilization yeah. so I guess I wanted to get your sense as a religion scholar extent to which it, mainstream Islamic intellectuals have been responding to what doesn't seem to be just a minority of extremes within Islam, but is kind of quite an active and uh, prevalent stream, at least in contemporary Islam. And whether or not you think this is going to be a clash within a civilization or it's going to flip on the screen of the end of history and the triumph of liberalism will Okay. <laughs> the question takes note of the fact that, that Professor Elstein uh, and President Bush have both <laughs> stressed that, uh, from our perspective in any event, 
uh, our nation's perspective, this is not a war against a religion. It's not a war of religion, but a war against international criminals. However, uh, in uh, recent uh, commentary, several notable uh, people, uh, whom, uh, Gene, you and I have uh, frequently written against, as it happens, and in favor of sometimes, have argued that, uh, in fact, this is a war of religion, perhaps not yeah. between uh, mm -hmm. Islam uh, and uh, Christianity, but but between certain, uh, I think they would probably call them fundamentalist tendencies yeah. that are common to the two religions, against those who have made their peace, if, I, if I'm quoting Andrew Sullivan Craig, made their peace with uh, modernity. I think it was put by Salman Rushdie in a recent article yes. as this is a war uh, to defend dancing in short skirts. <laughs> now, I think he was saying this from the perspective of thinking that's a good thing uh, to, uh, uh, to you, defend, you, you to spill blood, yeah, yeah. blood and treasure uh, uh, on. Uh, no, I will comment no further. You, you may now take over. <laughs> um, you left out Christopher Hitchens. He would belong in there, too, as someone who I think not only uh, sees it as a clash between civilizations, but he, he is, is sort of eager for such a fight, it strikes me, um, and uh, with, I guess has signed on with, with, uh, with Huntington, or at least with the way Huntington is sometimes understood, which Huntington claims is a misunderstanding of what he said, but we needn't debate that right now. The Certainly our opponents want to make it a clash of civilizations. Uh, they want to uh, sort of arouse the entire Islamic world uh, and, and make them part of this struggle. And their reference points, you know, they're hearkening all the way back to the Crusades and a lot of other stuff. Uh, and they're trying to, in a sense, use lots of these historic analogies, bring them forward and say this, this absolutely and appropriately applies to the current situation. It seems to me we have a, a very powerful stake in preventing that interpretation, if you will, or that effort from succeeding, that interpretation from prevailing. That said, it is also clear that this is a, this is a, has has clarified, has brought to a head in a, a horrific way a struggle internal to Islam. I think there's no doubt about that. Um, it's a struggle that 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 Muslims um, have got to fight um, to to sort out. Um, it's not going to be very easy. Um, certainly there are a number of Islamic scholars who have in fact uh, admitted that this is the case, um, that they have an enormous job to do. It takes a lot of courage uh, to do it, but it is a fight that has to go forward. And I think that fight can go forward, forward without assuming that it's either <clears throat> you sign on with every dimension of modernity or you're, you're, you're someone who's, a, a, you know, what does Hitchens call them, Islamo-fascism or something gentle like that, um, <laughs> as if those are the only options. I mean, I think that every great world religion has negotiated over the centuries its own reaction to uh, those forces that we concatenate together and call modernity. And it's worked out some very complicated, um, what would one call it? I don't want to call it, I don't mean compromise in a bad sense, but, but sort of found its way within the modern world. Um, <clears throat> certainly the Catholic Church did that quite a long time ago. I think Islam has never been pressed in that way. Um, so this, this is undoubtedly a crisis within Islam. Uh, it's one that's going to take a long time to sort out, and I think it presents a very delicate situation for the United States 
uh, to say the least, precisely because we never want it to be turned into this clash between civilizations. Let me add here as well, and this, this goes back to, to Jeff's question um, about um, <clears throat> cultures or nations uh, acknowledging what they've done in the past and trying to make recompense or to apologize. Um, certainly Christians have rightly been called upon to do that repeatedly and have done it repeatedly, um, have been asked to look back at their own history of involvement in violent uh, and uh, unfortunate and even sort of hideous deeds or misdeeds. Um, the current pope um, uh, has been doing that. It's a, just a feature of his papacy um, to, in fact, acknowledge those sorts of sins of commission as well as omission. Um, I know that within the Jewish community the same thing has happened at various points. It seems to me that is the sign of, of a mature religion in many ways, one that can acknowledge uh, its sins, its errors, and its participation in injustice. And I believe we have every reason to look forward to that moment uh, within Islam, and I think that there are Islamic scholars, Islamic leaders. There was an Islamic leader who was part of that meeting at the White House on September 20th, uh, who made it quite clear um, in his comments that he thought his religion had been hijacked with his language for this purpose, that Islam cannot and should not be used to justify these kinds of deeds, and that he was going to dedicate the rest of his life to that position and that argument. Um, so I think all the assistance and help we can give uh, he, in that effort is vital, knowing that finally this is an issue that Muslims have got to struggle with. We can't, we can't do that for them, um, and I think they realize that, but we can try to prevent this from becoming what Osama bin Laden wants it to be, which is precisely a war against Islam. We have a huge stake in preventing that. Well, I, I am going to have to be the bad guy and, and, make, <clears throat> and make Gene stop, but I, I, I will just do two more quick ones. You've had your hand up the entire time, I've, I've noticed. Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, yes, right here. Sorry. You mentioned that Just War Theory is uh, developed by Augustine and, and early Christian uh, theology. Well, they got the ball rolling. Okay, yeah. so it's based on Christian theology. Yes. Now, uh, some modern uh, theorists have either uh, tried to find basis in Kant's yeah, um, yeah. high comparative yeah. and principle of autonomy, or they take it at face value, which is what I think Walter does, and just says, well, I'm going to start off at the level of the theory. Now, my question is, does the theory have any coherence outside of Christian theology? And if it does, how deep do you have to go into the metaphysical ground for it? Okay, important question about, uh, given the origins of just war doctrine in the Christian tradition, uh, is it possible to articulate a defensible version of it, as some have tried to do, uh, Michael Walzer was mentioned, who lives here in Princeton, is at the Institute, uh, on uh, grounds that don't appeal to uh, Christian doctrines. Um, the answer is the answer is yes, but it's it's a it's a troubled yes, and I'd have to start to proliferate all sorts of caveats. This same question has emerged in the debates about human rights, as you probably know. Um, at the 50th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, there were all sorts of discussions about well, finally. Uh, we have to look at the origins of this notion of rights, that that, that origin lies in certain uh, traditional religious assumptions, specifically Christian, about the equal dignity of all of God's children. And from that comes this imperative that sort of bears fruit every t um, over time in this notion of human rights. Can you sustain human rights without 
making reference back finally to that starting point, that point of origination. Uh, certainly the vast majority of those who defend human rights nowadays, those in the human rights community, believe that you can, believe that uh, human rights has become so much a part of, let's just call it the sort of um, normative language of modernity, of the world of which we are a part, that it isn't necessary at every point in time to keep taking the argument to another level and to say, if you don't have the whole structure displayed at any point in time, you can't defend human rights. I think something similar is, is going on with the just war tradition. Uh, undoubtedly, uh, its primary articulators, up until Grotius certainly, uh, were those who explicitly developed theological modes of reasoning and argument uh, to sustain this tradition. And would certainly, if they were here, say that it, it doesn't hold together unless you have that entire theological underpinning or apparatus. Um, but it seems to me that uh, we are, even without a, a kind of thin argument underlying it, we're much better off with it than without it. And there's a way in which it has, in fact, been incorporated, been encoded into uh, via natural law, natural right language, into uh, codes of war and ethical restraint of war. Um, and I believe that you can't do much better than that in a situation in which you simply have to acknowledge that a condition of the world of which we're a part is a condition of plurality, a very complicated sets of places from which people start, but it seems to me that all the places from which people start can nevertheless conduce to a conviction that human rights is a good thing or that ethical restraint in time of war is a good thing. And you don't have to, again, go all the way back and all the way down at any given point in time to make that argument and to make that case. Last question, Professor Herman Bells. This is back to the, uh, the yes. There's Is there any equivalent of the just war tradition in uh, the Islamic uh, faith? Um, there, there are debates uh, within Islam on this. Um, I remember very well being a part of one of those discussions in Jerusalem a few years back um, when the task before us was looking at uh, the Islamic, Jewish, and Christian traditions um, insofar as they have yielded ways of thinking about war. Um, you had to have lots of Christians there because it been so, so that you've got Christian pacifism, the just war tradition, Christian realism, a la Reinhold Niebuhr, which has a close relationship to Christian just war teaching, but it isn't exactly the same thing. Uh, Michael Walzer, uh, already mentioned, and uh, other scholars were there talking about the Jewish tradition and the ethical restraint of war, and we had a couple of very distinguished Islamist scholars who argued that, in fact, uh, they, they did have a tradition of reflecting on restraint in time of war, but it looked quite different from uh, the, the just war tradition because what was emphasized uh, was not so much justice, injustice, as honorable and dishonorable. And that what was mentioned was the issue of the warrior lifted up as central was the issue of the warrior's honor and in what that lies. Now, uh, is that as, as, as powerful or can that act in the same powerful way as a set of restraints? I guess we're going to find out. Uh, certainly there are some scholars uh, within um, uh, 
you know, religious scholarship, I think even thinking of uh, John Kelsey's work on the Islamic tradition of war and peace, uh, that, who, who argued that you can, in fact, call from uh, Islamic teaching from the Quran something like you know, these restraints, especially where non-combatant immunity is concerned. But the issue of honor was the one, rather than, than right-wrong, was emphasized. Uh, there, is, there is no is- Islamic tradition of pacifism. But there is, there is something like limitations on the use of force and how force is to be used. Thank or, you all very much. Oh, yes. Yeah, I- <laughs> Before thanking Professor Elstein and giving you one more opportunity to thank her. <laughs> no, you don't have uh, to. I, uh, I do want to uh, mm. say a couple of uh, words of thanks to others. Uh, first, I'd like to thank the Princeton High School for lending us the flag. Uh, and I would like to say a special uh, word of thanks uh, to the uh, benefactors and uh, members of the Advisory Council of the James Madison Program uh, who are here. Let me also say that this lecture is part of the Alpheus T. Mason Lecture Series in the James Madison uh, Program, made possible by a generous gift of a benefactor, Mr. John Hansel. Uh, and Alpheus Mason, uh, you should all know, was uh, the third great McCormick professor of jurisprudence following uh, Woodrow Wilson and Edward S. Corwin, uh, serving in that position from 1948 to 1965 and helping to build the wonderful uh, tradition of which I've been such a beneficiary uh, here. And those of you in constitutional interpretation uh, should know him as one of the great names who helped to build uh, that course into uh, uh, what it is. We have more Alpheus T. Mason uh, lectures to come in the course of the year. They'll be well advertised. And I hope uh, many, many of you will uh, come out uh, for them. And now I conclude by again thanking <laughs> Jean Beth Gale. We have a reception uh, just outside these doors, and you are all very welcome. <laughs>